0: LANDY <laughs> LANDY
1: Hello and welcome to Draw, Loser, Draw, a podcast covering all things Partick Thistle. On today's special episode, myself and David have been joined by ex Thistle player David McKinnon for a chat about his career at Thistle, his career post football, and his book. David, how are you? Thank you very much for joining us.
0: Yeah, great, Matt. I'm really looking forward to speaking to uh, the fans of Partick Thistle. I've got a great affinity uh, with them and I was a player there, so really looking forward to it.
1: That's always good to hear. We'll, we'll start at the start of your, your Thistle career. Then you signed for Thistle in the late seventies. You played every league game that season. So what was it like starting off at Thistle? At, was it 22? You were. What was it like at that stage of your career signing for a club like Thistle?
0: It was great uh, for me because I um, I started at Arsenal. I was there four years. I had a contract and uh, was tapped by Dundee, and uh, you know I decided to leave Arsenal. <laughs> and ask the manager to rip up my contract and, and go to Dundee. So that was a bit traumatic, to be honest, because um, it wasn't the best decision I ever made in my, my football career. Uh, and I also get injured at Dundee very early on, so it wasn't the best of times for me. The change of manager at Dundee, uh, Tommy Gemmell, came in. You know, I Subsequently, uh, I think I played about 27 games once I came back from injury, and Bertie Old came up to see me playing Inverness and um, he liked what he saw, and uh, a week later signed for Partick Thistle, and it was a it was a great experience, uh, and the best dressing room I was in in the whole of my career, so really enjoyed it.
1: What do you think made the dressing
0: room so yeah. good at that time? Just the crazy characters that were in it. I mean, the and Bertie Old as well, because Bert, Bertie was a a very, very good manager. He was he was great tactician and also uh, he used to play mind games with, with the players and he decided to that he was going to be the, the evil sister, if you like. And uh, basically the, the way that he, he, he treated us um, bordered and insane, to be honest. And, uh, you know, the players actually got together because of that, because we were all, you know, as one and we played for each other. And... The the atmosphere in the the dressing room was just absolutely outrageous. I actually had signed for Partick earlier in the week, I think, um, and uh, Bertie signed me. You know, I I trebled my wages and um, that's a good, decent signing on for you, but he he didn't really tell me that they were part-time. So (laughs) I didn't know that until he said to me, turn up uh, on Tuesday night for training. And that was an experience. And that kind of set the standards for me because... What they used to do on a Tuesday it was all running basically said to me right we're going to do a cross country run so I'm we're going to Mogai well, Reservoir or something like that he said no no he says what we'll do is we'll leave for Hill Pairs you run up through Saracen through Puzzle Park uh, and then back to the club and everything so I was waiting. he said to you, you go with Ruffy he said because uh, I want him stretched so I thought, right, so me and Ruffy are standing outside Firhill. Bertie's got the stopwatch. Big Donny Donnie mckinnon has got the whistle and he blows the whistle. And We're on up Firhill Road into Pan- Panmuir Street. And as we turn the corner, I'm about 50 yards ahead of Ruffy already. <laughs> Basically, there's a taxi waiting. And Ruffy shouts, Davey, come on. I've got this taxi. We'll just get a taxi. <laughs> he said, uh, this, this running isn't for goalkeepers. And I thought to myself, right, first night, I'm not doing that. So I said to Ruffy, No, I'm 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 running. So I run on my own. He says, I'll meet you at the end, uh, Hill Park. He says, More running together. So as I get down, um I think we it was Bill's Fizzling you call it, and um see the taxi, about maybe a hundred yards, hundred and fifty yards in front, Ruffy sticks his head out and the next thing he's running. He's a hundred and fifty yards ahead of me. And we get into Firhill Road and uh we get down and uh, Ruffy, I managed to get some of it back, so he's about maybe 50 yards in front of me, 30 yards, something like that. And uh, Ruffy dips uh, <laughs> and uh, Barry says, oh, Dave McKinnon, I thought you could run. Imagine letting Ruffy beat you, and know, this kind of thing. I, he says, you're not dundying now, Davey. He says, you need to buck up your ideas. And I thought, this is just outrageous. So Ruffy ran for a bath uh, and I ended up having to do 20 laps in the park. <laughs> So that kind of set the precedent of the madness at Thistle in the dressing room. You would, for example, I was um, in the treatment table once, and Donnie McKinley put electrodes on me and the mixing. Uh, I think it was Colin McAdam burst in and uh, turned it up to ten. So I was shaking in the treatment table. Ronnie thought I was. Uh, Donnie thought I was having a fit. He so, saw but that was the kind of things he did. They would throw your clothes into the bath and. With we a great team spirit, and that transpired onto the park. We would run through brick walls for each other. Barry t- taught us how to play, how to, you know, play um, positional-wise. Every player, when they went on the park, knew what their job was. And, you know, if you look back in those days, we were finishing well within the top six. Brilliant players, you know, like um, Brian Whittaker. Jamie Doyle that played um, Donald Park uh, up front, Mo Johnson, uh, Colin McAdam, Boogie Sumner, Bobby Houston, um, and Jim Melrose, and you know we were a force to be reckoned when we regularly beat Rangers and Celtic convincingly. Um, so it was great days and a great time to be a part of Thistle player. Um, yeah, so
2: obviously you're talking about like the sort of the, the tough love of Barry Olds, great humour of everything, but. As you say, make you believe that you could run through brick walls. I mean, that seventy-eight, seventy-nine season. I mean, Fisal were challenging for the Premier League title at the turn of the year. Like we were, we were doing absolutely fantastic. We we eventually fell away and finished eighth.
0: But yeah, I can I can tell you how that happened, David, because um, we were. I think we were just a, a few points away from the top, and we played our last game the twenty-second of December. And those of you certain vintage, you remember there was a. Unbelievable freeze that year. The River Clyde was frozen. We were a part-time team. We couldn't train anywhere and we ended up just training in in school halls and things like that. So the fitness levels went down. We didn't play for two or three months. And I think, you know, from going, you know, just, uh, I think we were a couple of points off the top and really... With, there was a huge belief in the dressing room that we could actually potentially win the league because we were that good and we were that confident. We feared no one. Uh, and when we came back, the fitness had just gone and I think we lost something like 11 out of the last 18 that we had to play. And that was the reason why, because of that freeze. So, you know, at worst we would have you know, qualified for Europe quite convincingly, I'm sure. But uh, it was uh, it was a, a, a time when... You know, great players there and um, great attitude. And, and also, the relationship we had with the fans was just incredible. I mean, you know, the, the fans cheered every touch, every tackle. Um, they really gave you a huge boost on the park. And we had a great relationship with the fans. So everything that the, the club aligned with, a, also, with Bertie there, with a, a really good chairman in Miller Reid. Um, who really supported the club understood his position you know he, he once get carried away we beat Celtic uh, 1-0 in the Glasgow Cup final and Miller's a great party this, uh, Thistle supporter, obviously and he came run in dressing address no more excited and uh, Bertie just said to him Mr Chairman this is my domain your domain's the boardroom so with uh, due respect get yourself to <laughs> the dressing room. And but that was it. And Miller Miller just nodded, really lovely man, and, and, and got it. But he, it showed the passion that the board had and the chairman had. And that was reflected amongst the management and the indeed the players and the fans. So everyone was perfectly aligned. We're, we're only six points off of
2: Europe. Obviously, it's two points for a win at that point, but only six points off of Europe. And at the same time in that season, we got to the, the Scottish Cup semi-final. We played in all five games against Sterling, Dunbarton and Airdrie en route. But um, we got to the the semi-final um, against Rangers. And yeah. more, than fa- more than 40 years on, Jags fans are still absolutely fuming about Bobby Houston's late winner being disallowed for inverted commas, offside um, on the 4th of April at Hamden. We then went on and lost the replay 1-0, but what, what was your view on it? Well, was it offside? How, how did you feel? What, was that a, a big missed opportunity?
0: Well, I think the thing is, like sometimes, you know, played in many cup finals, many semi-finals, sometimes it goes through and sometimes it doesn't, but certainly we were the better. I remember we were the better team. You know, outplayed Rangers as... as and if you look at probably the results, uh, Thistle against Rangers and Celtic, you know, we beat them on a regular basis and they actually feared us. We could tell because we would go there and, and you know, if we were playing at Ibrox or Parkhead, we would go there and, and, and outplay them for periods. So we were of an equal, we, we, at least. And I think, um, you know, we all felt that we could beat Rangers. It transpired that we didn't and, you know, That was just one of these things, I think, you know, but uh, we certainly uh, believed we were good enough. And, and, you know, I think that at that time, I think we started to lose some players because, you know, obviously teams come sniffing and uh, realise that there's there's some great players in that team. Uh, Colin McAdam went to Rangers, of course. He was just uh, incredible up front, you know, and Ram you know, get the ball into the box. I used to, uh, Brian Whittaker and I had a great relationship on and off the park, a lovely, lovely guy, sadly missed. And um, in defending, you know, I'd been at Arsenal and, you know, I'd been taught how to defend and we actually worked very closely. One of the things that we did, which, you know, doesn't happen now, was that um, in a corner, he used to go on the left post and I used to go on the right. And during that season, I remember that we must have cleared 20 goals off the, off the goal line of being on the post. And it galls me now when I see goals going in at the post because there's nobody on it. So, you know, that was one thing that we worked on. Also, when Brian went forward, I stayed back to give cover. And when I went forward, Brian stayed forward. He did a lot more than me and he scored I think he scored a few important goals I know he scored uh, one at Ibrooks, I think we beat Rangers 2-0 and he scored for Hill when um, we beat Celtic so and I, I unfortunately uh, never scored which was uh, galling for me but um, I put a lot of crosses in when I used to get to the dead ball line and I knew that I just had to hang it into the air for uh, Colin McAdam, and he'd go and he would just annihilate any centre half. No centre half could play against him because he was just so forced and focused heading that ball into the net. And it was it was it was brilliant to play football. The pitch wasn't the best. That was the only thing I would say. It was very bobbly because we trained on it a lot. And I think I, I think at that time the club may have stepped back a wee bit and said, look, we've got a really good team that can go for years and, and really challenge, go for cups. Into Europe, you know, lift the club to maybe a different level, but we need to hang on to the, the, the players that are in the, the squad, and we didn't do that. There was players allowed to go, as I say, Colin McAdam, Jim Melrose, went Doogie Sumner, uh, I went Brian Whitaker uh, left to go to Celtic. So there was a lot of a lot of players left, and that kind of killed the team a wee bit, uh, to be honest. Looking back, you know, if I was associated with the club now in any uh, executive. Position. At that time, I would have said, "Look, let's endeavour to keep this this um, team together and build on it, and even maybe go full time." Uh, we, we we toyed with the idea we we you know had a hybrid thing where you could come in a couple of days during the day, and a few players did that, and it was mainly tactical stuff that we barely used to do in those days. But a uh, wonderful, wonderful club and wonderful times, to be honest.
2: But the thing is, is it we would have played Hibs in the final, and we beat Hibs 6-1 six one three weeks before the final. Yeah, um, yeah. W- would it be fair to say that if the big threes didn't happen, that we probably could have won the cup, or at the very least qualified? I mean, we're only two points off if Europe, or six points off of Europe, sorry, um, in that season. Would it have been fair to say that the freeze probably is the reason why we, we didn't qualify or that we could have won the
0: Cup? Absolutely. I think you're 100% right. It's, um, you know, circumstances, as I say, you know, at that time, the facilities, there was, in fact, I, I don't believe there was any artificial surfaces that we could even go and train. And I remember we trained at a very, very high level. And, and Bertie had a thing which is pretty unique for me was, um, I remember my debut was against Dundee United at Firhill and uh on the Thursday night uh, the team list went up and I was playing and uh, I thought well, that's great looking forward to this, it was against Dundee United obviously and um it said report to the ground at 10am and I'm thinking myself well, it's a 3 o'clock kick off why are we reporting at 10am I said to Big Ruffy, I says why are we why are we reporting early he says you'll see right so I thought right okay so I arrived at 10 o'clock and the reserve team were there as well and, and basically they were putting bibs on. Donnie McKinnon uh, was putting uh, training gear on in a bib. Wee Pat Quinn, the assistant manager, was putting on training gear in a bib. Bertie was doing the same. Big David Proven, who was a coach there, uh, ex-Rangers, he was doing the same. So basically what happened is they did a full game on the park and they did that for every home game. Uh, and I obviously was just in and I'm playing and they come through and uh, I managed to get the ball and I thought, well that's it, well that's the end move because I thought it was just about tactics and positional stuff. And then we better they came up to me and uh, said to me, McKinnon, I, I bought you cause you could tackle, so you better start start tackling. This is it's a practice game. He went, No, it's no. This is how we'll play this afternoon. For the next couple of minutes I looked and Brian wanted their size be pack quick uh, up against the wall. You know, in the terracing, and uh, I thought, well, I better start tackling. So I started tackling. Guys were flying over, and then I, I broke through uh, the midfield, and then played in Jim Melrose. And, and I looked, and next thing, we Bertie's running, we studs up, uh, and tries to do, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and Brian score, Sorry, Mello scores, and that was it. And Bertie said to me, "I'll get you next time, McKinnon." So it was serious, but that what that did was. It got you into the frame of mind of how you had to play in the afternoon. It uh, wouldn't work at a lot of clubs, but um, it was certainly uh, got your attitude right. Uh, so that was the kind of things. And, and but training on the park uh, because we didn't have any alternatives. That was that was the issue. And, and when we, we did cardio work, we inevitably run round, um, you know, in the local area. So, but we were incredibly fit, and we could we could run from the start to the finish.
2: So the following season, 7980, we were seventh, but we're only fourteen points fourteen points behind Aberdeen, the champions, who we were managed by Sir Alex Ferguson at the time. Another two points of the season is qualified for Europe, but Fistle were the only team that that uh, Fergie's Aberdeen didn't beat that season. We were undefeated against them. What was it like playing against a Fergie team? And why do you think
0: we were the only team that they couldn't beat this season? I think because we as I said, we all knew our jobs and we'd uh, good players in good positions, um, and you know Aberdeen never really threatened. As and again, with this confidence as a team that we could beat anyone, we really believed in each other. And, and as a footballer, you take a lot of knocks, you get um, a lot of people criticising you and trying to pull you down. But you know, if you've got the support of your teammates, the manager who believes in you, and sets out a clear vision, then. You can do anything. And it's a lot of football, I, I reckon, is about probably 80% confidence in your own ability and what you can do. Because you see so many teams when maybe things are not going so well that the players go into their shell. You know, I, I had it at clubs where when things were going well, as a full-back, I'd look up and I'd see people wanting the ball. You know, maybe six or seven players within uh, in front of me want, actually wanting the ball to their feet. But when things weren't going well, they turned their back on you, and you would just have to, you know, make do if you like. So confidence is huge, uh, and we'd incredible confidence uh, in ourselves and each other, and also the manager about how he would set us out. It was a great time. At, at Thistle. I said that a few times, but it was it was just. Um, you know, i have written about some of the things in my book that I'd, I'd forgotten about. You know, Weber in particular. You'll probably come to the following season when um, I think it was three or four of us played for the Scottish League, which was incredible. And that just tells you how good, how good the players were and how good the club was.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And um, obviously, all to left in um, November 1988, Peter Cormack came in. You still had. A good run, but eventually were relegated in Cormac's first season. What was it like playing under Cormac, and what do you think contributed to the relegation?
0: Well, I think the you know, just taking it back a wee bit, um, I um, basically contracted tuberculosis uh, during that season. I played for the Scottish League against Northern Ireland. That's Jim Melrose. I think Jamie Doyle played. You know, we were we were all flying, and then uh, I started feeling ill, and it was actually in a pre-season game against Rangers at Ibrox. I went to the toilet, and blood in my urine, things. So, get test after test after test, and and September into October, I hadn't played. Basically, discovered a tuberculosis, and I had to get my, my right kidney removed, which was pretty traumatic. But Bertie, you know, there was actually there was a program. Uh, Scott Sport on Saturday night and I was in, in a private room and the TV and one of the reporters come on and says, uh, Dave McKinnon, the uh, party thistle captain's career's over tonight after the removal of a kidney. So I'm thinking to myself, goodness sake And then about ten minutes later the door burst open. Saturday night, half past ten. Uh, I could smell the smoke before I saw who it was. He bet one of his big cigars and said, I heard about that Dave in the T V says, um, you just forget it, he said, uh, You'll be back in my team. I'll really make sure that you get back and get back to full fitness. So I thought, well, that's great. And he said, in fact, he said, I've spoken to Miller Reid. He said, and uh, we're going to get some sun in your back when you get out. So I'm myself, well, that's, that's great. You know, we're in October, so, you know, it'll be somewhere warm, maybe the Caribbean, who knows? And then uh, I got home a fortnight later and there was a, the doorbell went and I w- went to the door, felt well enough to go up and, Guy said, sunbed for Mr McKinnon. <laughs> and that was Bertie. I uh, saw that I had to be motivated and get my focus on something else. So it was about you know how I was going to go and go on holiday and, and you know the club were support me and that. And then he I, I gets my sunbed. So that summed up we Bertie. And you basically, I, I came back uh, in the training after about maybe three, four months, just before Bertie, you know, again, it was instrumental in my recovery because um, I'd been training. I'd lost, I'd lost and gained three stone, and I was trying to get back to fitness. Uh, and I, I played. I remember playing a, a reserve game at Fairhill and the first half, I ran about, and I thought, "Well, I've got away with it." But I, you know, I never tackled. or did anything because I was a bit concerned about my, my side. Second half, we came out. Big dudey McNab, the reserve goalkeeper. Suddenly came out and kneed me in my side where I had my kidney removed. And I went down, and basically, uh, Big Doogie's really upset. David, David, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, says um, Bertie told me to do it. <laughs> so, Bertie obviously saw that I wasn't getting engaged in any the physical stuff, and he told Big Doogie McNabb to knee me in the side. And I went down, physio came on, and that was it. Basically, I was fine. So, the psychologically, I'd go over. The injury, I was fit. And then, um, next thing I know, Bertie's um, going to Hibs uh, and Peter Cormack came in. P- Peter was a nice guy uh, and, you know, ex-Liverpool and, you know, a legend. And it was, I think it was only 35, 36. But I don't think he knew the players because he played, been playing in England for a lot of the time. And basically, we had a great association with Bertie. And Peter came in and he would talk to you and say, you know, what position do you play? you know, have you played many games and all that? And he said to me, to me in particular, he says, oh, you've not played any games? I said, no, I've had my kidney removed. He went off. says, so, that's that you for the season? I said, no, absolutely not. So I get fit and I come back six months, after six months, played against um, Clyde in the Cup. But the, 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 just the whole bell of the dressing room changed because uh, Peter was a different animal and, and you know, Barry had been at the club for such a long time. I'd been there for four years by this time. And I think Peter wanted to change things. I, I think he thought that sometimes managers come in and, and what they do is, like if there's a familiarity with the previous manager, they want to change it. And I think that was Peter's mentality. He wanted to say, right, I need I need to move players on because, you know, they were too close to the previous manager. And that's what he did. Uh, and he told me probably, I think it's probably about maybe February, March, that. Uh, my contract was up. He said, "Listen, I'll not be renewing your contract." He said, "And if I can get thirty grand for you, I'll take it." So I'm saying, right? Okay. So yeah, I think he said that to quite a few players. So that is affecting players when they know. You see it now with freedom of contract. The last thing a club wants to do is put a, allow a player to go into the last year's contract, play for probably half of that, and then the last four or five months. They don't uh, play because they, they don't want to get injured. And that was the same at Farrell. I think there was a lot of players that were told that they were leaving. that wasn't a good thing. And I think that's what caused the, the relegation, to be perfectly honest. You know, it was a team that, that should never have been relegated because there was still some really good players in it. But these things happen. But uh, I then had offers to go to Everton Howard Kendall, uh, Sid Mirren. Uh, and Rangers, and eventually I was transferred to, to Rangers for thirty thousand. So, as far as I was concerned, that was my uh, my relationship with Partick over. And you know, sadly, I left because it was it was a it was a big wrench leaving leaving the players that I knew, uh, and there's some you know unbelievable memories there. But again, that, that's part and parcel of football. I'm afraid,
1: David. I want to just speak about your what you've been up to since you, you hung your boots up. You've obviously been involved off the off the park with a few football clubs. When you were when you were out with your your kidney been removed and you had that long period out, is that when you started to to plan what you wanted to do after football, or when did the sort of thought first come into your head that you wanted to stay in football once you'd retired?
0: Uh, actually, it, it, it didn't happen then. I mean, what happened when I get my kidney removed was I changed my game basically because I you know I started to analyse my game, so I was really concentrating on the football side. When I was at Rangers when I was 29, I had a bad knee injury and had to go part-time. Um, but I got a job at Tenant's, in the in Meist House division, so I managed the, their, the pubs that they owned. Uh, I was involved in brands, Neals, lot of All Bar One, uh, R ten and the Horseshoe Bar. Great, great pubs and, and it was a great company to work for. So I had a great education. I was there for 12 years. Then um, I got hunted Uh, to join uh, a pub company, an independent pub company, at 44 uh, pubs and hotels, uh, and I became a a relatively decent shareholder in it. Again, a great education, so I knew business inside out. I went to Paisley University to get a business degree and things. So business was um, in in my uh, starting to dominate, you know, the way that I thought about things. I'd been doing stuff with the BBC, going to games, Uh, I had no desire to get back into football, but then we sold the pub company and uh, I was approached by Clyde, if I could help them out, as a commercial director, which I did. Then uh, I was approached by Kilmarmut to become their general manager CEO. Basically, what I did was I used my football experience uh, and my business experience to align everything within a club and I had a real... A definitive way of how a football club should run, uh, and I implemented that, and it was successful. You know, the board, dressing room, the managed football management, the fans, would be given a clear objective of of what what the club wanted to achieve strategically. Communicated that through all these different areas, and you know, particularly with the fans, met uh, on a regular basis with the fans to update them on where we were. Against the plan, so that was great. I did the same at Dundee, and again it was it was relatively successful. Um, so I was different, if you like, because uh, I think I was probably the first ex-player that had um, you know become a chief executive at a club. Uh, but as I say, it was uh, the way I did it was 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 using the experience of of uh, both the dressing room and the um, the boardroom. And uh, making decisions for football purposes, not just commercial purposes. Because sometimes boards, they make decisions based on the commercial aspect of the club rather than how does this affect the football. Because ultimately, the football comes first and foremost. If you've not got a good football team or indeed you are not good performances on the park, you can forget it. Uh, You can have the best sponsorship, the, the most money coming in. But unless you've got the football side as your focus, then that will not happen. And also, as I say, you need to get the fans on board. Particularly at Dundee, you know, I went there and there was eight different factions of fans. They were all well-minded and, you know, really wanted the team to do well, but they were they were pulling against each other in certain aspects of it. So what I did was I decided, right, OK, got them all together, looked at what they wanted to achieve and then had a meeting with each, every one of them. Uh, collectively and I locked I remember getting them into the boardroom at Den's Park and locking the door and I said we're not going out here unless we've got an agreement how we're going to operate going forward. Four hours hours later we did. They would would, um, basically nominate one person that would be a full board member, be a functioning board member and we would communicate exactly what we could uh, uh, to the fans and I used to meet with the fans on a monthly basis and explain to them everything about the football side of the club and indeed the commercial side of it, and it worked. So that's that was my philosophy, and I could only do that if I um, you know, had, had the football experience. And I see, see a lot of people now that, that are involved in, in these roles that, that don't do that, and, and it's to their detriment because short-termism, you need to have a clear plan, get everybody involved in it, and um, get buy-in. And if you do that, you'll be a success, uh, both on and off the park. So, so that's my philosophy in football, and I really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed, you know, uh, being part of the decision-making process and getting success, uh, ultimately. One of the things I'd like to say, though, uh, if it's OK, I was also involved uh, at end tail during the COVID experience when, you know, disgracefully, um, you know, Partick, Harts and Stranraer were relegated, and what I, uh, the club I was at was Morton at the time, and they 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 voted to take the money. I basically uh, spoke to the SPFL and said, "Look, is this the right decision? No, it's not the right decision." Uh, and every club agreed it was it was the wrong decision. But there's a great thing in football about uh, self-interest, and that became very clear. But what I did was get involved with others to create a, a reconstruction that would, that would ensure that the uh, club stayed in the division they were and there was no relegation, but and worked very very hard on it with uh, Anne Budge uh, and um, the other directors and uh, everyone agreed with it, but it never went to a vote, which was strange because it was basically it was vetoed in the media by lower league clubs because. Ultimately, what happened to self-interest was that, you know, clubs in League One, it was a better proposition getting Partick Thistle in than, than, than somebody else. You know, they bring a lot of supporters. Hearts was the same, getting into the Championship would bring a lot of supporters. So that was the mentality in it. And it was, it was basically, I had enough by then. You know, when I saw that, that self-interest thing, I just thought, nah, this is not the game that you know, I like and love uh have for, for many many years so I decided to get out at, at that stage and I've never regretted getting out it to be honest.
1: I think you're preaching to the converted, yeah, like <laughs> All official fans listening all sort of um recognize this self-interest that was at play. And even even the sort of fan experiences you get now post COVID, you can still see that clubs haven't you'd say clubs haven't really learned the lessons that, that fans are the sort of lifeblood of them.
0: But no, absolutely. And, and, and the other thing is like there's actually because of that 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 experience did the, the, the game a terrible the service and there's actually boardrooms now I understand that, that people would speak to each other from other clubs <laughs> because of what happened uh, so it's, it was it was a terrible time but it would, it was easily fixed but as I say it was carried out in the media you know I think the BBC in particular was getting they were getting people on every week to spout what their interest was. And, and as I say, it was it was a terrible. But I just decided at that time, you know, Martin was taking over, and I just decided, well, that's that's my time done. I'm I'm getting out of it. And I, as I say, I don't regret it at all. I miss I miss certain aspects of it, but you know, it, it was just uh, it wasn't it wasn't a good time to be involved in football. Yeah, you've yeah. obviously mentioned yeah. your
1: affiliation with Thistle. Have you ever been close to having a an off the field role, role at Thistle?
0: Yep, I um, was asked by uh, Billy Allen, who owned the club at one stage. uh, Really nice guy. And he asked me to become the chief executive when Ian Maxwell went to the SFA. And I basically agreed to to go there as the chief executive. But he then, I think he sold up. He sold up to uh, the the woman that was involved there. Um, His name escapes me at the moment. Um, she became the chair, remember? Jackie Lowe. Jackie Lowe, and I remember I was to go and see her and uh, a couple of the board members, and despite being offered the job, uh, she made it a bit clear that I wasn't really her choice. (laughs) So, um, you know, I think the thing is, like, uh, I've got a kind of uh, belief in my own self about delivering stuff, and I just, just... it didn't sit right for me, so uh, it never happened. And, you know, uh, that was, who, who knows, it was him. Jerry took over. he's a good guy and, you know, uh, a real good football man. So um, I was glad that, that he had um, decided to accept the job. Um, but uh, who, who knows? I think the thing is, I've, I've been uh, chief executive and player at Kilmarnock, Dundee, Thistle would have made a hat trick. <laughs> but it wasn't a be. So so that that's the only, you know, time that uh, you know, I was ever gonna get back into the club.
1: The engagement you've had with fans at your, your previous clubs, I think that's a shame that never materialised. Uh, I've just got a couple of quick fire questions, David, and then I think David is gonna ask you just to plug your book before we finish, just quickly, what was your favorite game you played in a thistle shot? Well,
0: I think there was a few, but I, I I really enjoyed not because I signed for Rangers, but I enjoyed um, playing against Celtic because they were always very, very tight games. And and also I'll, I'll tell you a story about about how how we treated it. The Celtic game, um, we treated it we every game with the same irrespective of who we played. And there was a lot of stuff went on in the dressing room before we actually went out on in the park. And then I, I remember that. Celtic game, I think we beat them, I uh, forget the scores, but we beat them at Firhill, oh, no no sorry, we drew one each one at Firhill, and um, it was torrential rain, Brian Whittaker uh, such a character, it was November, and he decided to turn up, he was going to uh, the Savoy after, the nightclub, and he decided to turn up, uh, looking at some that the Huam video, he had uh, espadillos, he had um, pink shorts on and a yellow vest uh, so he comes into the dress before the game and you know obviously the players were you know laughing like mad and we better he said right that's it Piggy they called him I don't know why they called him Piggy but Piggy as you find a week's wages you've no got a suit and he said hold on a minute Gaffer and he basically gets puts a white suit on that he'd got in a Slater's bag <laughs> and, and get away with it and then uh, basically as Brian had uh, lucky leopard skin pants that he wore all the time that was his, his, his lucky pants right? so basically what he did was he took them off and hung them up and put his slips on and his shorts and went into the toilet and Big Ruffy grabbed the leopard skin uh, pants, pulled down his own shorts and his slips and put the leopard skin pants on so we're playing Celtic it's um, I think it's uh, they get a penalty basically so Ruffy's in goal I think Murdo McLeod hit it and Ruffy saves it. So he's the the mud was incredible. So he's 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 dived in the mud. He's got shorts on, he's not got bottoms and all the muds and his shorts and all that kind of things. But he's got his piggy's leopard skin pants on underneath. So about a couple of minutes later, players gets injured and they've got a corner. So I'm in one post, Brian's the other, and Ruffy's in the middle and you know, capacity crowd, there's twenty odd thousand there, I think. And uh, Ruffy pulls down his shorts to reveal the leper skin pants that are caked in mouth, <laughs> and says <laughs> to, it to Brian, Well, but he's Do you recognise And Brian goes over and grabs them. The two of them start wrestling. Brian's trying to get the pants off. <laughs> and the game's got, the referee comes up to me and says, are don't know, right?" I says, "Ah, I says there's just a dispute over the penalty ref. Uh, I'll get it sorted. So I get it sorted." And then uh, in the dressing room. One each. It was. It finished. Final whistle went in the dressing room. Brian pulls the shorts, uh, the leperskin skin pants off Ruffy. He gives him a puts some back on. Puts his pink shorts on and his yellow vest and his espadillos and walks out to go <laughs> to go clubbing. You know, it was surreal. Uh, it was just incredible. But it's the only club that kind of thing happened at. You know, and and it was so many good memories and um, so many lovely, lovely boys and. You know they really enjoyed playing for the club, so that kind of tells you a wee bit how casual we were off the park, but we were not in the park. We didn't really get stuck in.
1: You've obviously you know, shared a dressing room, you've played with, and you've worked with some some Thistle legends. If you could share a dressing room, if you go back in time and share a dressing room with somebody you didn't play with or work with, who's played for Thistle, who would you pick?
0: Played for Thistle. Well, let me tell you a story about Jackie Husband, uh, such a legend for Thistle. He actually saved my my career. Um, as I told you, I went, I left Arsenal, got to rip up my contract, signed for Dundee and then I got an injury uh, and had to get two operations in my ankle and my career was nearly over, believe it or not. Jackie was a family friend, I lived in Renfrew and Jackie lived in Renfrew and uh, I got a call at uh, my house in Dundee and it was Jackie and he said, David said." Uh, been hearing reports, so you've got this bad limp. I was training, you know, try to train, and try to get a this bad limp, limp, uh, limp after my operation. He said, um, "Come down." He said, "And I'll, uh, I'll have a look at it for you. I think I can sort it." You know, I travelled down to, to Renfrew, went to Jackie's house, and um, he hypnotised me, believe it or not. Uh, and basically, I'd never been hypnotised in my life. It was, it was into psychology and all that kind of thing. And he said. Um, you're going to go back to Dundee and that lump will disappear. You're going to go out onto the park. You'll be running as you've always done uh, and you'll go back to full fitness and you'll go back into the team and you'll do well in your career. Now, he did that and I went back to Dundee and went to training the next day and the lump had disappeared. Now, it was obviously it was a psychological blockage that I had in it, but Jackie Husband, basically allowed me to start playing again and, and, and definitely saved my career. And also, uh, he was such a nice man, and a lovely, lovely man. And he taught me how to take throw-ins because he had a long throw. And whilst I couldn't eclipse what, what he did, I, I imagined he, he used to, even like when his he, he must have been, I don't know, late 50s or something like that. Even at his age, he could throw the ball from the touchline uh, past the penalty spot. And I just thought I said I remember said to him one day Jackie, I said, if I could ever get that into my game, just think how many goals Big Colin would score, Colin McAdam, with that. So Jackie has been as a gentleman and a decent man and a guy who saved my career. I'd have loved to have been in the same part with him.
1: Yep, that's a great
0: answer.
1: Uh, lastly, for me, we ask all of our guests. This as we've asked Chris Stuhl and Ian McAllister. They've all given varied answers. How many bites does it take you to eat a cream egg?
0: Well, uh, I have to wash my waistline now, but um, probably, uh, I think it's probably three. Three will do it for me. Fair enough,
1: fair enough. (laughs) David, do to come back in to finish.
2: Yeah, sure. So obviously you've got a book out at the moment.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I really appreciate the opportunity. Um, I had an accident last year that nearly uh, nearly took my life. I'd fell downstairs and ruptured an artery into my brain. And... um, I had a long road to recovery. It subsequently developed into other things like heart issue, footballer's heart issue that I'm going to try and get out in the public domain uh, for, for screening. I'll tell you about that. But I had been asked a, f- a few times to write book, a, a book about my career, but I, I didn't think the time was right. But in order for me to get back to full fitness, um, I decided to get everything down in paper. And uh, I wrote a book and, and, and it's not like any other football book you've ever read. It's not like I played for the school team and the scout came and I ended up getting you know, this. It's about recovery. It's about mental recovery. It's about physical recovery. And it's also about uh, using your inner strength and your challenges that you've experienced in, your, in my football career and indeed my life to get back on track. It's a book about positivity and using positivity. Um, you know, uh, and actually getting back to, as I say, full health. And so that's what it's about. And also it's, it's, it's my, um, you know, every month, uh, every chapter I would speak about at the start would talk about what was going on in my head. I mean, some strange episode because my brain had to reset uh, because it had such a trauma. Strange, strange things happened to me. I, I, I thought about my mortality. So there's a couple of chapters talking about Players and managers that I were involved with that are no longer here. Really good anecdotes about them. You know, if you think of Tysle Angle, we're talking about Brian Whitaker, such a lovely guy, Colin McAdams, such a lovely guy, and talking about my experience with them. Uh, Bertie Old, talking about my experience with Bertie and, and and some of the things that he did for to motivate you. And that and I thought about all these things um, during my recovery. So that's what it's about, and, and, and it's about, as I say, positivity and, and you know, overcoming uh, things that you think are, are you're not going to get back from. And, and also, I had a thing in my, because of some of the things that happened in my, my upbringing, about um, when things were going well, there'd always be a negative coming, uh, because that was my experience. But I actually managed to turn that round in my head by writing my book and actually said, well, if, you, if there's bad things happening and you're at the bottom, good things are automatically coming because that's what happens. Good times follow bad times. So that gave me the inner strength to, to get back to fitness. And that's what the book's about. And also, one of the things that I've discovered, because the NHS have been absolutely unbelievable with me, some amazing doctors uh, discovered a, a thing called footballer's heart. It uh, started with a thing called arrhythmia, where... My heart rate was going from, you know, 40, 50, 190, down to 30. Uh, because when you're playing and training, your heart muscle grows to such an extent to, to ensure there's enough oxygen going into your, your body and your brain that when it when you stop training, it retracts and it goes in. It can, can go into a regular sa- uh, shape. Mine's going into a regular shape. So... Um, you know, one side of my uh my, my chamber and my heart's beating one way, the other side's beating normally. So it causes this anomaly. Uh they subsequently then did some more tests and discovered that um this was genetic for me as well. Uh and I've got a, a thing called um, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. And and sadly that's what players like fellow O'Donnell died with. Uh and 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 then I've discovered uh in my you know uh, investigations with us to get to the bottom is that um, in Scotland uh, we don't test the players it's not mandatory for any heart issues uh, they do in England and they do in most of the, the European countries but we don't do it in Scotland uh, and I think a lot of that's to do with cost and things like that uh, clubs have to pay for it so I've actually been speaking to quite a few ex-players who've got, got this uh, and you know, a couple of them have only known about it when they've collapsed in the street, nearly died. So I'm on a quest to get this out, make awareness that this condition uh, is there, and try to get mandatory testing for current players and some kind of referral scheme for for screening for um, you know ex players, so that we can have a look at this and see if we can eliminate any deaths, you know, because, um, you know, sadly, as I say, Phil O'Donnell died. Uh, Erickson, you know, collapsed in the pitch. It. Um, so uh, it's something that needs awareness. I actually had a, a an ex-teammate of mine, and he's younger than me, and um, he found out about my heart issue, and he, he phoned me up and he said, what's the symptoms? And I told him. And he said to me, he says, Do you know, collapsed six times in the street. He said, I don't know how it's happened. And I said, well, you better go to your doctor. So he goes to his doctor, gets tested. He's got arrhythmia um, and he's on tablets to sort it. So it's this awareness that, that, that you know, it, it's been allowed to just go into the, uh, the depths and, and, and what I don't want to do, because I've, I've, I've been the luckiest guy in the world that fell down those stairs and ruptured the artery into my brain because I've had all this testing. There will be people out there that maybe have this uh, and they're unaware of it. But if, they, if they, they, they get some screening and testing, then they will be able to get medication to sort it. As I'm getting done just now, so, so that, that's the next thing on my agenda. I, I talk about that quite openly in my book. I'm glad that I had the opportunity to do that because, you know, wasn't about writing a book because you want to, you know, get to get money? It's that that never happens. It's more about just getting therapeutic for me but also you know uh, having the ability to to make people aware of, of this condition that's what, I, what i've wanted to do so so I'm, I'm really quite pleased with it absolutely
1: i think yeah, that's yeah, a really, yeah, really yeah, good yeah, cause definitely. david and i hope you do manage to raise as much awareness about that as possible listen well, you've been really generous with your time david we appreciate it and it's been really really interesting and fascinating to talk to you about about thistle and your your career after that so thank you very much for joining
0: us today yeah, and, and I hope the club gets back to where it should be. You know, I really believe that it's a, it's a great club, great fans, you know, absolutely unbelievable fans, uh, as all clubs have. But you know, they deserve to, to to be in the Premier League, competing as we did all those years ago. Thank you very much, both of you. Really appreciate it.
1: Thanks, David. If you've enjoyed listening to this episode, you can buy Dave's book now: Slide Tackles and Boardroom Battles. Available in all good bookstores. Thank you for listening to this special episode of Jaw, Loser, Jaw. We will be back next week to look back on the Queen's Park game. In the meantime, stay safe.